0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 112 He is the Great I Am. Thank you for joining me again. Welcome back. I know it's been a while. I've had a lot going on. Uh, I recently had my fourth uh, my fourth son. His name is Miles, and uh, both he and his mother are doing very well. And uh, I recently, well, several weeks ago, a couple of months ago, something like that, had a live in-person moderated debate with Dr. Phil Fernandez on the topic of hell. Uh, and that went very well. And you can find it in HD on YouTube at youtube.com slash rethinkinghell. Uh, I'd love to n- know what you think of that debate. I thought that, um, I thought that it went really well. I thought I did, I thought I did well. But most importantly – Uh, We were respectful and kind and loving and friendly. And uh, several people commented that that was something that really touched and inspired them. Uh, You know, uh, Dr. James White and his friend Dr. Michael Brown, uh, you know, they they both disagreed passionately on soteriology, uh, the former being a reformed, you know, Calvinist like me, the latter being Armenian. Uh, But what they – but their debate, their recent debate over – Calvinism was really a model for how two Christians, two brothers, can passionately disagree with one another, but in respect and in charity. And we tried, Dr. Fernandez and I tried to model the same kind of mutual uh, respect in our debate, and I think that we succeeded in that. Uh, do check it out and let me know what you think. And actually, I'll explain as I introduce my uh, interview guest, uh, this, that debate with Dr. Fernandez was the impetus both for the previous episode of the Apologetics podcast with Dr. Chris Tilling, as well as for this one and the, and the guest that joins me today. Uh, I will... Um, leave it at that and and, uh, play the next promo in uh, my promo rotation, which is for Matt Slick's CARM Radio.
1: There is a God. You are
2: not him. Welcome to Faith and Reason, the apologetics, Christian-based apologetics show. Where we answer difficult questions about Christianity, we expose the errors of such things as atheism, Roman Catholicism, evolution,
0: Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian science, New Age, Islam, and various other sort of religious and secular systems. Why? Because Jesus alone is the way to truth and life, and if you don't receive him as your savior, you're lost and you're in trouble on the day of judgment. I know that I need to create a uh, more up-to-date promo since in the beginning of that he calls it Faith and Reason, which he had to change uh, quite a while ago to CARM Radio. So hopefully uh, I can create a new promo. In the meantime, uh, the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, CARM.org, is a really good ministry, and I encourage you to check out the resources that they make available. Uh, CARM Radio is something that Matt Slick does live every single day, Monday through Friday, from, uh, from 4 to 5 Pacific time. Uh, on KSPD in Boise, Idaho Which is AM 790 uh, You can also subscribe to the podcast By going to Karm.org and clicking on radio And, and you'll find a podcast link there And actually my guest today um, As you'll uh, learn is, Has joined the Karm team um, So without further ado We'll just jump right into the interview And you'll get to learn about him Hello, and welcome to another episode of the The Apologetics podcast. You may recall that in the last episode, I interviewed Dr. Chris Tilling. In introducing that interview, I explained that my friend, Dr. Phil Fernandez, agreed to debate me if I would help him prepare for his upcoming debate with Unitarian Dave Barron. And Chris Tilling's interview was an attempt to do just that. Well, I've managed to squeeze in one more episode with that goal in mind before his debate, which I think is coming up in just a few short days. And joining me to, joining me to help Dr. Fernandez prepare is my friend, Michael Burgos. Uh, Michael is the author of Kiss the Sun, a Christological Apology in Response to David K. Bernard's The Oneness of God. And he's the editor of the Journal for Trinitarian Studies and Apologetics, published by the Christian Apologists and Research Ministry. In its recently published second volume, Michael contributes an article entitled Explicit Deity, John eighteen six, in which he discusses Jesus' use of the phrase I am. And it's that, the I am statements of Jesus, and perhaps a little bit more, uh, that Michael joins me today to discuss. Thanks you. Thank you so much for joining me
2: today, Mike yeah chris it's uh it's a pleasure
0: last time you were on the show, uh, I think that we were doing a po- post mortem of sorts on your uh on your debate with james Anderson. and since then I know that you 've been up to a whole lot uh, for one thing, you became an official member of the of the carm team isn't that right
2: uh yeah for for better
0: or worse yeah <laughs> well so what are you what are you doing for CARM besides besides editing the journal which we'll talk about shortly
2: um, i've been doing some research uh Working on other book projects, uh, helping prospective authors uh, along to uh, get their stuff ready for publishing, that sort of thing. Been working on various various things. I mean, a, a wide variety of different things. I mean, right now we're uh, getting ready to release uh, a number of a number of uh, books that are, um, you know, uh, sort of apologetic handbooks for for laity dealing with issues like um roman catholicism and Je- jehovah's witnesses and mormonism and uh and these kinds of things and you know we're there's just a lot going on right now so that's kind of what i've been up to cool
0: um you also published a book i mentioned it a moment ago kiss the sun tell us about that
2: yeah um david k bernard is uh I think, in the minds of most Oneness Pentecostals, the go-to guy when it comes to Oneness Pentecostal uh, theology, and particularly the doctrine of God. And his book, The Oneness of God, is um, pretty much the preeminent you know, treatment of the subject. I mean, there are other books that are a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more nuanced, but The Oneness of God is, is the book that when you had... You know, let's say you talk to a, a oneness Pentecostal pastor, that's the book that they're going to have read, and that's going to ha- probably have a pretty good amount of impact on their theology. And and there had been no books written to address that book uh, that has sold quite a bit, and it's it's really been the standard within oneness Pentecostalism. And so my book is um is a response book to that, uh, but it's primarily focused on the Son of God and uh, an exegesis of, of certain texts and um, really a kind of critical analysis of what Bernard presents in his book. And so, you know, it's kind of uh, uh, one of those things where, you know, I want it to be useful for for the church and, and to grow in their understanding of the knowledge of Christ but at the same time it has an evangelistic uh, appeal to it
0: cool what sort of uh, responses or feedback have you gotten um,
2: well I haven't heard from Bernard <laughs> <laughs> I did mail him out a copy with a with a letter and um, I, I didn't receive any feedback and then I actually talked to a, a one that's Pentecostal who was um I guess he was going to have Bernard at his church and i I asked him to mention the book and see if he you know uh received it and see if he had anything to say about it and I never got uh a chance to hear whether or not that happened i, I don't think that it did and uh so far as oneness pentecostals um i I've heard you know uh some mischaracterizations <laughs> I've heard um People say it's the same old kind of rehash, which I, I don't think it is. Um, and then I've heard some say uh, that this is something that we ought to think about. I mean, in fact, there was a uh, young man who I attended a college class with. Um, oh, about about a year ago when the book first came out, and he was a, a attended a local oneness church, and he took a good look at the book i guess over the course of a number of weeks and um you know he said this has made me reconsider it and and i was you know i was pleased about that he did criticize it for being a little bit too a little bit too technical i guess uh he wasn't used to that <laughs> but I, I really tried to avoid that but you know well you got you got to avoid use of the word anarthrous. <laughs> Yeah, you know all those kinds of pretentious five dollars mm. theological terms. No, that's all right.
0: Well, you know the one other thing that at least I know that you've done since uh, the last time you was on the, you were on the show is it you uh i don't know if you started or not you'll have to you'll have to um clarify that for me but at the very least you're the editor of uh the journal for trinitarian studies and apologetics uh which has published two volumes from what i understand under carm's publishing division biblical press w- what what can listeners expect from the journal and and why might why might they want to get their hands on one or both of those volumes and maybe you can also answer that question i had which is if it's something you started or you know something that somebody asked you to do or what
2: yeah i i, I did start it uh although there were people within the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry that that had um, a, a pretty good role, uh, Ken Cook being being one of them. Um, basically, the, the journal, uh, the vision was for it um, to make sort of a grassroots journal where um, people of all kinds would be able to contribute freely to, um, and that um, articles uh, dealing primarily, although not restricted to, the doctrine of God uh, would be published and uh, would be made available to uh, people at a low price point so that um, information that, that's really excellent could be disseminated. And, you know, it's a, it was kind of a, a, a big project. I mean, you know... <sighs> You look at the thing and it's like, you know, well, this doesn't seem like that big of a project, but <laughs> to put all that stuff together and, you know, everything from formatting to, you know, setting up uh, pagination to having people, you know, all different contributors and that sort of thing, um, it's a lot of work. And, and, you know, the first uh, the first edition was kind of a a learning experience. I think we really up the game on the second edition. And um, we've gotten some great articles with some great contributors. We've got, uh, in this latest issue, we have um, a contribution by Dr. Douglas Gruthice, uh, who just recently uh, came out with a uh, book on Christian apologetics that's actually pretty, pretty outstanding. We have an article in there by David Wood, uh, who's uh, really an excer- expert on... Uh, on Islam, right? Um, a couple of book and and movie reviews, um, and we have a really good article by a guy by the name of Mark Sessions, who's a layperson. and that I wanted that to be sort of one of the distinctive things about this journal that it wasn't just going to be publishing material from you know people who, who have you know who have letters after their name, sure, you know, and I and I think we've accomplished that thus far, but. The, the first edition had a couple of great articles in there, one from Rob Bowman, um, and we all know who he is, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite people,
1: yeah,
2: and uh, Dr. Edward Dalcor, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So <clears throat> while the pagination and the continuity of footnotes and all that stuff may not be as good as... Uh, the ETS journal, <laughs> I think it is useful. I think it's uh, a nice piece. And, and I think, and I know for a fact that people have benefited from it as, as many have told me. And so in the future, we're just trying to uh, put together um, a, a peer revo- review board um, of, of people who have a lot of experience in the field of, of this kind of scholarship and, um, to keep it um, on you know, a grassroots effort but at the same time to up the ante a little more so far as quality and that sort of thing. But but I think it is useful and I, I hope that more people check it out because it might really bless you and it might help you out in your understanding of Christ and and it might help you to uh, maybe articulate the faith a little better.
0: Yeah, well – you know, at the end of the interview, I'm, I'm going to be sure to ask you how our listeners can find those resources, including the journal, uh, and I'll include links in the show notes. Um, as I mentioned when I introduced you, your article in that second volume of JTSA focuses on the I am statement made by Jesus in John 18.6. Maybe we could get this ball rolling by uh, by having you read that verse in its context for us and then sort of summarize some of the various contentions that are made about it.
2: Yeah, sure. Sure. Um- Let me just uh, turn to it here. If you can believe it, I'm going to be reading from a paper Bible. Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Who does that Um, anymore? Yeah, really. Um, Boy, it's been a while. This thing still smells new. Um, Okay, so I'm going to be reading from John 18, and we'll start at, uh, let's see, verse 4. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And of course this is talking about the the arresting party. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them when Jesus said to them, I am he. Uh, when When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. And that is uh, from the ESV. Right. Um, so an interesting text, and, you know, immediately raises a whole bunch of questions. Um, you know, for instance, you know, the question that most people have is, well, why why did the, the mob react in the way that they did? Right. And... Trinitarians traditionally have understood that text, uh, particularly verse 6, uh, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground as being evidence for Christ's deity, in fact, uh, strong evidence. Whereas Unitarians, people like David Barron, um, Greg Stafford, and these kinds of folks, um, have come up with some alternate explanations for the response of the mob and uh, really don't see the same kinds of things that uh, Trinitarians have historically pointed to uh, in regards to the text. Uh, so, I mean, maybe we could kind of use this as a foil to look at some of the background of the Ego Aime statements throughout Scripture. That would probably be a good way of... Looking at it, well, well. Before
0: we get that, get to that, though. You know, you read from the ESV, which, as you know, uh, includes the word "he" and and doesn't. Uh, instead of italicizing "he," it inc- it includes a footnote, and uh, you know, and and the reason why the footnote is there, or in other translations, the reason why the word "he" is in italics is because uh, the pronoun isn't in the Greek. I'm curious, as a, before, we get into some of the background, like you like you suggested, as a standalone phrase. I am, or ego, ego a me. Is it is it grammatically correct in the original Greek, or uh, just the ego a me? Or really, should there, if it were to be grammatically correct, should there be a pronoun after it?
2: Well, within this particular context, I think it's perfectly fine to include the pronoun because I think it's probably implied. Um, you know, because I think the, the antecedent is, you know, whom are you looking for? Well, they're obviously looking for Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, it says within the Greek text, Jesus the Nazarene, hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting. But, but I, I, I think it's legitimate to include the pronoun. Um, I don't think that can be said about uh, John 8.58 and maybe some other texts because I don't think you have an implied uh, predicate. But, um, but but but
0: are th- are there other examples of in which the phrase egoimi ego is used by other people than Jesus where where the pronoun is implied and isn't included in the Greek? I, I genuinely don't know and that's why I'm curious.
2: Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. There okay. is. I uh, I couldn't point to you uh right now an example of that, but yeah, it, it, it does happen and it's not terribly uncommon. Um but When you're reading the Gospel of John and even uh, some of the synoptic Gospels in in particular places, um, it becomes pretty evident pretty quick that there's something going on within the text um, that when you add uh, what we think is implied in the text, um, it may take away uh, some of the brunt. Mm. Whereas somebody in the first century reading um, you know a handwritten copy of the biblical text wouldn't wouldn't have that issue. I mean, it's more of a problem with English than it would be with Greek and so stylists who are translating and and stylizing the ESV for you know English readers uh are obliged to put in the pronoun and and I think it probably reads better but i I think that um that something's you know, lost. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I mean, I don't know. I'm fine with it, but um, you know, I I like the fact that the ESV and and other translations will italicize or put a footnote or or something. I mean, I I wish there were more footnotes in Bibles, to be be frank with you.
0: No, I agree. Um, Well, let's dive into some of the background. In the the first the first text that stands out in my mind anyway is uh, is Exodus 3.14. You know, our listeners might recall that uh, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he told Moses, I am who I am, or I am that I am. And I've often heard that Unitarians claim that the I am statements of Jesus, such as in John 18.6, doesn't exactly match to say the Septuagint's translation of Exodus 3.14. Is that, is that true?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, the, the Unitarians... Um, sp- you know they they call our our sort of connecting, or or at least attempting to connect Jesus's use of of Y me with um, passages like Exodus 3:14 as as uh, strange or unsubstantiated or bizarre. I mean I've read a host of Unitarian books and articles and things where they they try to make these kinds of accusations. Exodus 3:14 is a really interesting passage. Uh, I'll be the first to say that I'm uh, not trained in in biblical Hebrew, so I'm relying on third-party sources. Um, But uh, the text there, uh, you have Moses asking God. um, He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I then say? And, of course, God answers, Moses, I am who I am. And some Unitarian writers have said, well, you know what? This actually isn't the best rendering of the Hebrew text. Um, I know Barron, in his uh, book, he says that, you know, it would be better translated, I will be that I will be. And, you know, I I don't know whether or not that would be the case. I mean, it seems to me that most English translations render it, I am who I am. But it could be that it might be rendered better otherwise. But see, the real the real thing at play here is not so much what the Hebrew text says, but you know, and and there may be divergence there from what the the translations have uh, for that passage. But really, what is important is what the translators of the Septuagint rendered right. as God's answer. And the, what they did there is they, they rendered that phrase, Ego i ha Ha'on, which, you know, again, a lot of these Unitarians will say, well, that's probably not the best rendering, but this is the Bible of the writers of the New Testament. This is, you know, a, a text that is constantly uh, being quoted in, the new testament particularly in the gospel of john mm. um we can look at places like john 12 and see that quite obviously john's relying heavily upon the the septuagint and um and so we we would say that uh the septuagint takes a prominent place within the mind of john as he's writing his gospel
0: i let me interrupt for a second i'm curious you know when jesus is in the synagogue and he reads, uh, reads from the, reads from the scroll. Um, is he quoting the Septuagint or, or is he, or is he not? I'm just, do you happen to know?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I, I did look into that at one time. Uh, I don't believe that he is. Okay. Um, uh, you, I mean, there are some people who would argue, well, you know, maybe he's giving a loose paraphrase. Maybe he's not, uh, or it may depend on what version of the Septuagint, he was reading from at the time uh, there are all those kinds of speculations but i don't think that jesus ever quoted from the septuagint at least so far as i can tell from from the new testament
0: but it's clear that john and other authors of the new testament frequently frequently quote from the septuagint right
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Particularly Paul. I mean, all the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so in, in the Septuagint rendition here, you you said – you pointed out correctly that uh, the Greek says ego e mi ho hoon or ha on. Um, and, and, you know, And it's interesting because when the English – where the English translations later in that verse say uh, I am hath sent me unto you. Uh, you know the Greek uses the ho or the ha on instead of the ego a me, and I'm guessing maybe that's where I got the idea that Unitarians think that uh, that Jesus isn't quoting the relevant relevant part of that verse, you know, in such a way that would make our argument carry force. So I mean maybe we can begin really quick by by talking about you said that you said that Unitarians will sometimes say that I am that I am isn't really a good translation and it should be something like I I will be what I will be. But what does ego a me and ha on mean in Greek?
2: Um, ego is, is the word I, and I, me is the verb to be, you know, the common verb to be. And so, ha own is ha, the article, and own is the participial, uh, version of I, me. So, I, me and own are, I mean, basically the same word. They're both the verb to be. One's a participle and one's just, you know, like a, uh. Uh, the the normal the normative verb and so it literally means I am the being or I am the one existing or, or something along those lines I mean you could probably give it a couple of different translations but uh, basically I think what the what the text communicates is um, God's personal eternal existence hmm. um, and I think there's some interesting texts in in Revelation, where I think um, God kind of gives us an exegesis, if you will, of of what me mi ha'on means um, when he he says in Revelation one uh, four that uh, let me um, let me just look that up and maybe give it a little bit of context here. Uh, I don't want to speak out of turn, but um, uh, let's see. Pardon my, my momentary wasting of your no, no. show time. I can, I can
0: edit out the dead air. No
2: problem. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, in Revelation 1-4, it says uh, John to the seven churches in Asia. says grace and peace to you uh, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And I think that's kind of what's being communicated with that phrase – I mi ha own. Well, in fact, in uh, fact,
0: in that verse in Revelation one four, that for the 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 words uh, which is that's that's ha own right.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and and you also have the verb ain, uh, which is translated was, which is the same verb that we would find in a place like John one one and Rk ain halagas right mm-hmm. in the beginning was the word. Um, so you know it's it's an emphatic. You know, proclamation of, of existence, and I would argue eternality. Um, but I, it, it also, in my mind, when, when I read a text like that, it also incorporates the idea of personhood and, and actual relationship and that sort of thing. Um, because it's grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And when Moses received that an answer from God... Um I think that what he took away from that was that this is the god who who is there for for his people mm. and I think that's kind of the the idea that 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 is being communicated there and, and you know in addition to uh the obvious claim of eternal existence um, so so it's not you know. Trinitarian,
0: we, we Trinitarian, you know, apologists will oftentimes focus on the or, or zoom in on the uh, the sort of ontological uh, connotations of of what what the Lord is saying there. But you're saying that there may be an additional sort of personal layer that that adds right. some meaning there that maybe we're, we're overlooking. I mean, the, the, the Jews, the, the Israelites had been, um, you know, in captivity for, you know, hundreds of years, they must've felt abandoned, you know, maybe they wondered if God was there, that kind of a thing. And so I, maybe, you know, God saying, I am is saying, no, I am here. I, I, I am here for you and I'm about to establish, you know, to, to reestablish this relationship with you. Is that, is that kind of along the lines of what you're
2: getting at? Yeah, that's the exactly idea because the the context of the passage is Moses is going to the people with a message of exile that's about to end. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's going there with a redemptive message um, to pre-God's people, and and the message he brings, uh, part of that message is the name of God, and and it certainly is a name because God says it's a name. <laughs> Um, where you know some Unitarian writers will even argue that this really isn't meant to be understood as a name, and I would say that those people are just you know denying exactly what the text says. Um, it, it absolutely is something that is meant to bring comfort to uh, God's people. I, I think that's the whole point of the context, and so you know, a lot of people just like to focus on you know the grammar and the syntax and. You know, they kind of miss the the real sweet meaning of that that phrase. And in the same way, when we would look at the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come and say, "Wow, <laughs> oh, I yeah. love this God," you know, um, I think that's exactly how uh, God's people then felt. That's really cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's I'd never seen that in Revelation one four before. That's that's really powerful. I, I want to talk about some of the other places in the Old Testament where uh, I am is used, but before we do, you know, now that I've seen the Greek of, of the Septuagint's rendition of Exodus three fourteen here in front of me, how you know, and, and maybe the answer to the question I'm about to ask you is largely going to come out over the course of the rest of this interview. But how do you respond to the Unitarian who claims that? that when Jesus says ego ego a he's not quoting what would be the powerful uh, phrase here in Exodus three fourteen, which which one might argue is is the I am, the ha'on from the second half of that verse. How would you respond to that?
2: Yeah, well I would say that if we were drawing a you know a line from, you know, Exodus three fourteen, and, and then the Septuagint's rendering of that and we were drawing a line from that to John eight. I would say, yeah, you're right. That's absurd, um, because it would seem to me that that would be a very loose connection. It, it, in that same sentence, I would also hasten to add that, wow, what Jesus said there is really odd, and it it's it's kind of bizarre. You know, before Abraham was, I am. You know, it's it doesn't um, it doesn't seem to flow well unless there's something else going on there, which I I think there obviously is. But that's not where the Old Testament ends. I mean, there's a lot more information. And as we parse through the Old Testament and kind of get a more broader glimpse of what it has to say and how God reveals himself, um, we come to see that um, there's a theme that runs through the text— Um, of the Old Testament, and particularly the Septuagint, where um, ego-i-me becomes uh, something that is almost formulaic in its utilization by God. And it's really quite interesting, and and I don't know, I I kind of feel like I'm treading on sacred ground when when I think about this, because it's just so unusual, you know? Maybe we should take our shoes off. You know? <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, oh, maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I remember listening to – well, moderating um, Dr. James White. God, I'm such a huge fan of his His debate with uh, Patrick novice, And I was blown away by the uh, survey that he did of Ego me in the Old Testament. Um, so, you know, maybe you can – Take us on this survey. You know, uh, what are some other places as in the Old Testament after Exodus three fourteen where "ego am"i in the uh, Septuagint play such a prominent role?
2: Yeah. So um, within the Septuagint, and and this is true also in in the the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, there there are places where the phrase "I am" occurs and and. That is ego, I, me, within the, the Septuagint, uh, without the use of, of the participle haon, um, where it occurs, and it's kind of a um, peculiar in that the way that it's rendered uh, makes it kind of awkward. Hmm. A good example of this is a really important text, Deuteronomy 32 39. Um, and that verse and I'm gonna be reading from a uh, a nice English translation of, of the Septuagint, a recent translation. It says this see see that I am and there is no God except me. Um that's kind of unusual. Mm. See see that I am and there is no God except me. It, it it it's kind of bizarre in that the I am seems to be kind of absolute. Um, there's not an implied, uh, predicate there. It's just kind of, I am, you know, Mm. it's just posited out there and, and God just kind of leaves it out there to float, you know? Um, and it seems to communicate God's exclusivity. I mean, that's what the context would apply, that there, there are no gods, uh, There are no gods that are a god, you know, like the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would argue. There are no lesser deities or created deities like Stafford and uh, Watchtower adherents Mm -hmm. uh, would say. That, That God is a class of one, I think, is the idea there. And, you know, even some liberal theologians have caught on to this, and they've tried to argue that, Um, there was a later insertion within Moses's song, uh, to, to kind (laughs) of stick this back in there, like a, like a, uh, you know, somebody, uh came up with the idea to keep adding on to the song so that it would have this very exclusive language. But, but I think this is something pretty, uh, pretty clear from the beginning of the text, can can the
0: unitarian response that we talked about earlier which is that uh the he is sort of applied because there's a there's a recent antecedent you know uh, that that it can refer to
2: can, can that work in this particular case I don't think it can i think it's an absolute uh utilization of ego i me um and i and i think what makes that clear is the context i, I don't see an implied predicate and even if even if you you could come up with that, there are there are enough texts that we're going to get to where, where that's also the case, um, you know. Like like for example, um, this is uh, uh, kind of a phenomenon that you'll find within the second half of Isaiah as well, particularly. And this is why a lot of uh, liberal theologians would argue that um, that. Deuteronomy 32:39 was a later addition to uh, Deuteronomy. Um, for example, in Isaiah 41, uh, verse 4, it says this, uh, Who has wrought and done these things? The one calling her from the beginning of generations has called her, I, God, am the first, and for the things that are coming, I am um so there's there's not in my mind anyway and in the mind of quite a few bible students there isn't a predicate implied there um, another text is isaiah 43:10 Well, wait wait before we get on to there, i just want to remind our listeners
0: of something so it, it, what's really cool is that each of these different texts we're looking at they uh not only appear to be using this uh this phrase in a, in a or in the case of ha- haon in exodus in Exodus passages are each, each of them has like their own unique uh, thing that they're bringing to the table. You know, with Exodus, it was this personal relationship that God was going to, uh, uh, to enter into with, with uh, his people. And then in the text we looked at uh, in Deuteronomy, it was, it was God's, being the only God, and that there are no other, you know, all other gods are false gods. And, now, and then here in Isaiah 41, we've got that God is the one who, uh, has, has, who has done everything, calling generations from the beginning. He's the first and the last, you know, his, his uniqueness and his eternality. Um, I, I just want our listeners to see all the different, very unique and powerful elements that this phrase is bringing in each of these cases. Um, so, anyway, I'm sorry, you, you were saying Isaiah 43.
2: Yeah, and just just by way of note, you you communicated something that was really important. You said that yeah, each one of these texts brings home a certain uh, attribute uh, or characteristic of God that that's really important, right? Yeah. Um, you said that um, Isaiah forty one four communicates that God's the first and the last, and that He's the one responsible for you know. For calling into uh, existence all that is, uh, and isn't that interesting that that same kind of language, uh, the first and the last, that kind <laughs> of thing, is used by none other than Jesus. And so it would seem to me that if Jesus were in fact, you know, some kind of exalted agent of God, or in the case of a, you know, a person like Anthony Buzzard, a, a Socinian type, just a mere mortal um that that would just ruin what this text has to say i mean if we're saying that god is the one responsible for these things and this is the turn of phrase that he uses to communicate it then how is it that god's created agent or human messiah can say these things without doing damage to the contention just something to think about there but
0: well and you know. i and, I, and I'm, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of a of a first century jew uh hearing You know, or or, or reading or hearing John's revelation read to me in in, uh, a home church or something like that. And I'm hearing both Jesus and his father in in Revelation calling themselves the first and the last. I would have had – I'm sure this Isaiah 41.4 is not the only place where the Lord calls himself the first and the the last. Um, I would immediately – Associate that with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. I can't imagine under, having under, taking that any other way as, as a first-century Jew. Are you aware of any um, any of the sort of Second Temple Judaism agents um, uh, using the first and the last alpha and omega type language um, of the of created agents? No. Okay. No, I
2: was no. just curious. <laughs> no, I mean you know sometimes they can come up with some kind of parallel with maybe one thing here or one thing there, but. When we look at the scope of what Jesus claimed for Himself and the things that are claimed um, for Him by by His followers, Paul and the like, um, you can't put those things together and say this is this is a finite creature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I mean, keep in mind this this is this one is not only called the Author of Life, but He's called the Alpha and Omega. Yeah. And I would uh, dare a Unitarian to try to argue their way into that yeah. um and, and i've seen the the really kind of pitiful uh, attempts that have been made um but this is the one that is called the lord of glory or, or you know glorious lord this is the one that's uh called god uh by thomas and and right. in that really you know uh i know it's a proof text but i i still find it completely powerful and, and very touching um within that context. This is the one that, you know, is, is given these exalted titles where Psalm 102 is applied to him. And he's called Lord within that kind of context in the first chapter of Hebrews. It seems to me like when it comes to this kind of thing and the argument of agency, it, it seems to me like Unitarians are making a big giant case for special pleading. Yeah. Um, Yep. But anyway, uh, Isaiah 43.10 is one of my favorites. It says this in, in the Septuagint. Be my witnesses. I, too, am a witness, says the Lord God, and the servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like um, very interesting, and, and, and we'll see some New Testament parallels to this text. Um, so, so keep that in mind. And one other to consider is wait, wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. before you get there. Um I, I'm looking at the verses leading up to this one. And this one I would I, I would say, just at this brief look that I'm taking at the verses leading up to this one, I would say that this one would even be more difficult than the last one to identify an implied uh you know, an implied pronoun. Um, you know, and and the other thing that I wanted to call out for our listeners was here's yet another uh uh, an added layer, uh, added meaning to this I am phrase that would bring to the first century Jews' mind what it is that Jesus is saying when he calls himself Ego I me." I mean, here God is saying, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there, be, shall there be after me. And yes, of course, we know that there are places in the Old Testament where people are called, you know, so-called gods, you know, in, in some sense or another. Um, but clearly here he's talking about there being no Ultimate God, no, no divine God, no, um, no true deity other than Himself, and you know. And here's this phrase "ego me" that, that stands out so peculiarly, as you pointed out from from the text. And so, I just wanted to keep our listeners tracking with this.
2: Yeah, I mean, just reading through Isaiah 43, I, I think it's so definitive, and it, it 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 takes out of the realm of possibility so many different things that. Not, not only Unitarians and, and their contentions, but, but also Mormons <laughs> and, <laughs> and a host of other, you know, liberal uh, uh, theories, you know, about how uh, there was an evolution to monotheism uh, within Judaism where, you know, initially you had this like monolatrous system where they believed in, you know, a host of deities and Yahweh was the supreme deity. And then eventually by the time you get to the second temple period, they theorize that, you know, now they're hard and fast monotheists, um, you know, because they, they call God like the the most high God. Mm. And so this would seem to imply to a lot of liberals and to a lot of Unitarians that there are actual other deities. That's silly. Uh, but when you read the, you know, the, the text, it also calls God the living God, which <laughs> if we were to carry the same logic would mean that <laughs> the other gods are not living. Yeah. Uh, so you had another text to take us to. Uh, yeah, Isaiah six, uh, 46, uh, verses 3 and 4. Uh, it says, Hear me, O house of Jacob, and everyone who is left of Israel, you are being carried From the womb and trained from the time you were a child until your old age, I am, and until you grow old, I am. And so here we have yet again another kind of characterization of God, (laughs) using that same uh, phrase, "I am." And and this is, um, I think, the the idea that that God is our shepherd; He is the one uh, who is always with, uh, the remnant, his people. And, um, I I think a very powerful text.
0: Yeah. He, uh, the, the King James, um, says, I will deliver you, you know, so this is, uh, uh, you know, in in other English translations, like the ESV says, I I will carry and I will save. So now, now, uh, and, and this is somewhat similar to the, profound um, – to, to what it is, it's profound that the Exodus passage brings to this. It's similar to that. But here you've got, in addition to God entering into a personal relationship with the Israelites ca- uh, captive in Egypt, and then in addition to, you know, before me there was no God and no God will be formed after me and so on and so forth. Now you've got God, maybe even – well, I mean, just just a picture. Let me, let me stray off uh, – go off on a little bit of a tangent. You know, there's that famous um, – uh, there's that famous uh, uh, poem or whatever or or story about the footprints in the sand, you know, and um, and I, I there I, I, I'm not an enormous fan of that. I think it's a little bit silly in in certain respects. But but the picture the 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 that, the, the emotions that it evokes in your heart when you think about yourself being carried by the Lord through the most difficult of times. Um, is really it's really profound and really powerful. And here God is is doing that. I'm going to carry you. I'm going to deliver you and save you. So it's just it, it's incredibly uh, powerful. You know uh, it's I mean?
2: funny because I I actually uh, a number of months ago I actually thought that same thing. I thought <sighs> of that cliched poem, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the last time I read it was um, I had found a, a framed version of that thing. You know, with the picture of some sand with some footprints in it um, at a yard sale. <laughs> mm. And I was looking at that thing and saying, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's sentimental and kind of, you know, mushy but um, interesting. And then uh, reading this text uh, and taking a hard look at it, um, I also felt the same way and thought the same exact thing. And I think that's exactly the connotation we're to take from it. Right. Um, that, and, and it's, I, quite honestly, the same kinds of things that are communicated to Jesus and his people within, um, the old, uh, the, the New Testament.
0: Yeah. Uh, I know, I, I know the, I know Ego me doesn't appear in the, uh, in the, um, passage I'm about to refer to, but you know, you, you mentioned how it's the same kind of this. This is the kind of picture that's painted of uh, of our Lord in the New Testament as well. And and it, you know, one of the things, and I know, I know that that uh, Unitarians are going to have their responses to this, but uh, or not um, uh, ones who don't believe that Jesus is God anyway. Uh, when Jesus says that there's no greater example of love than than you know giving your life for one's friends, that. That's always struck me as the reason I bring that up is just because of the uh, the, the loving savior uh, that this passage in Isaiah of, uh, brings to our mind. But but that's another one that always strikes me. Are, are you saying that Jesus was is capable of a greater act of love than uh, than God? Um, I've I've never heard what I think is a good response to that passage. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I think probably what they would try to say there is they they would try to say that you know maybe you can't. Because Jesus is um, the Son of God in a, in a Unitarian sense, and because he's, you know, whatever that would mean, really. I mean, I, I've tried to wrap my mind about that, but um, I'm not granting any ground to them or anything by saying that. But um, I, I, I think what they would try to argue is that you can't bifurcate uh, the work of God and his agent because uh, they would probably argue that it's, it's one and the same. But in reality, is it because Jesus is the one doing it? Right. <laughs> so it seems to me to be, and again, another case of special pleading.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can understand, uh, and and this is it's, this is undeniable. There, there is clearly uh, many cases in um, uh, in Second Temple Judaism texts, and and maybe even the Old Testament as well, in which agents are representatives of their uh, of the one who sent them and 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 so they you know there's certain um, language that can be attributed to them that is uh, really belongs to the one who sent the agent but but the idea that God could be um th- th- that you could say that God committed the greatest act of love by sending his agent to die for his friends <laughs> <Yeah>. that that <laughs> stripes, strikes me as absurd
2: yeah it's um I I wrote a piece one time called The Absurdity of Unitarianism, and, and what I tried to, to bring home in that was um, the fact that within the Unitarian paradigm, uh, you have a God who really is kind of unknowable, because he's mediated himself completely through his own creation. Hmm. And so there, even in his supposed great salvation... <laughs> You 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 don't actually get to Jehovah. You yeah. you you get his human agent, who is a creature. And how good does something finite reflect the infinite? Yeah. Well, it doesn't reflect it well at all. I mean, it's like uh, you know, it's like lead reflecting gold. I mean, it's 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 just terrible. And I think that's the big giant problem with Unitarianism. Be, and, I, and I think this is exactly what Athanasius um, hammered on time and time again with with the Aryan controversy, is that the Arians believed in an unknowable God. Mm. And unfortunately, I don't think our Unitarian friends have spent enough time dealing with the theology of their position. They've spent a lot of time on trying to come up with a tenable exegesis— <laughs> uh, and I think they failed at that but they haven't dealt with the theological implications of what they're trying to say I mean think about you know just for example think think about if I were to ask you what is the, what is the number one unitarian proof text that that you're going to hear when you're talking to a unitarian for 1 minute what do you what what is the verse that you're going to hear first uh well the one that comes to my mind is my,
0: it may not be the one that that you're hoping I'll answer but it's the one where Jesus says I need to return to the Father because He's greater than I am.
2: Okay yeah well I I guess I guess so. I I am it, most of the time I would I in my estimation and in my experience it's it's John seventeen three where Jesus calls the Father the only true God. Oh right 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 yeah. Of course. And when I talk to Unitarians and and I have. Uh, many many times over many many years um they are so quick to to go to that and to make use of that text uh and and we've seen it so many places i mean think about um the debate between uh dr james white of whom i am also uh, yeah. eternally grateful to and uh and greg stafford um who is a really sophisticated and articulate uh, um, Unitarian of the Aryan variety. Um, and, and in that debate, Stafford spent a lot of capital on driving home John seventeen three,
1: three
2: hmm. um, saying, you know, who, who is this one that's being called the only true God. And, Obviously, the answer to that is the Father, but they don't really believe that, and Saffron doesn't really believe that, because if we're going to say that the Father is the only true God, number one, we're going to be affirming orthodoxy, because that's how the Nicene Creed begins. Um, We believe in one almighty God, the Father, the Father Almighty. Um, But if you're going to say that God is Father then you're going to be affirming Trinitarian Orthodoxy because that's exactly what we, we believe. Right. Um, if you if you say God is Father, and eternally so, and, and that is his nature, that is his identity, then by virtue of that, he must have a son. Um, it seems pretty obvious to me, and it certainly was to Athanasius in the early church. Yeah, and you know, the other thing is, yeah, you know, I totally agree with what you're saying,
0: uh, the, the thing that Dr. White often says that I've always gotten a kick out of and, and that I've really come to appreciate is you know in order to in order to deny that Jesus could speak this way of his father you would you would basically have to deny the 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 simply the possibility that God could become a man because what would a man if God became a man what do you what what would he be expected to be would be would he be expected to be an atheist you know of course. A man that god becomes is going to call god the one true god of course do you know what i mean
2: yeah yeah i i i, I would agree i i probably wouldn't take that same tack with it because uh, if if a unitarian is arguing and, and this would probably be good for for your listeners to to keep this in mind because this is probably something they're going to come in contact with if they do talk to uh Jehovah's Witness or someone who would affirm some kind of Unitarianism if we're going to say that look, uh, the only true God is the Father um, I, I'm completely and utterly in agreement with that I'm not a tritheist, right. I, I don't believe the Father is a separate God from the Son I, I think with that when we affirm the deity of the Father, we're we'll simultaneously affirming the deity of the Son, they're, they're one and the same God They're not the same person, but they're the same God. In the same way, um, when we affirm the deity of the Father and we say that God is Father, and that's the revelation of Jesus Christ, I mean, that's what he has time and time again told us, that God is Father. When we pray, we pray to our Father. Uh, He is the one sent by the Father, the one sealed by the Father, and so forth. When Christ has spent so much time communicating that truth, the the Unitarian either has to say, "Well, God is Father in that he's the Creator." they They can say that
0: which which is, to be fair, one of the major ways in which he's called the Father in the Old Testament is is by virtue of being the Creator, right?
2: Yeah, well, there's that general utilization, but but the way in which Father is used in the New Testament right, is relational. Uh, it's, it doesn't really have much to do with the fact that God's creator. Uh, that's why Jesus calls him my father and yeah. your father, uh, uh, my God and your God. You know, um, I think Jesus, what, what he's driving home there is that there's a relational um, context to, the, to that term now where there wasn't one um, explicitly laid out in the Old Testament. Uh, there was only one in relation you know create the creator creation uh, sort of distinction um, but it, but if we 're going to say that that god 's fatherhood is derived from him being the creator, then we 've just made God dependent on creation to be who he is yeah um, or if we 're going to say that well God is God and that his fatherhood is predicated on creation but he wasn't father prior to creation then we're denying john seventeen three, and that's why i say unitarians really don't believe john seventeen three. um they only pay lip service to it because they think it mitigates our position but because we're not tritheists it, it really is kind of a straw man yeah it is sorry to put you on that uh sorry to, sorry to take you so far off track so
0: early no, on. There. No, no, no. You know, I'm, I'm glad because if all we covered were the I am statements in this, then then it would be limited in its, um, in how it helps out Dr. Fernandez. But I'm glad that we're touching upon all these related, uh, things that, um, that I think will help him out. Were there any other Old Testament uses of ego I mean that you wanted to discuss before we move on to the New Testament?
2: Yeah. Um, there's, there's some interesting things within the Septuagint that, that they're touching upon. Um, we got to remember, of course, the Septuagint is by its nature a translation. Uh, it's an ancient translation of, of the Hebrew text. Uh, tradition says that it's um, you know was done by uh, seventy Jewish scholars. I, I don't think there's any merit to that, but but it is a translation. And and so far that it's a translation, uh, the translators uh, took certain liberties with the text that kind of kind of divulge their understanding of things. Mm.
1: Um,
2: and this is particularly important with um, the meaning and use of ego Now, keep in mind that all of those uh, passages from Isaiah that we read use ego uh without the own right. uh, attached to it. So um, what's interesting is in Isaiah 45, um, there's another one of these I Am texts. Um, Isaiah forty five eighteen. Uh, it, within the Hebrew text, it's, it says, "I am the Lord, and there is no other." Right. Uh, and when it says, "I am the Lord," we understand that that within the the Hebrew text, uh, the Lord <laughs> there is the the Tetragrammaton. Right. But there's but and I, I if you don't mind me
0: taking a stab at where it is that you're going with this, uh, I'm looking at the Septuagint Greek, and I don't see. Curios or anything after egoi me is that what you're getting at?
2: Yeah, exactly. See what the translators of the Septuagint did was they omitted the Hebrew the, the tetragrammaton, um, in favor of egoi me. So quite literally, the the Septuagint reads "I am and there is no other." Mm. Now, the only response that I've read uh, from Unitarians to try to um, get around this, is they will point to uh, the fact that some uh, renderings of the Septuagint have a different reading, so there is a, a textual history there, obviously, we're, we're dealing with ancient text, so there's a textual variant, but the critical edition of the, the Septuagint, you know, the uh, uh critical uh, text of course has this rendering and, and if it didn't i i wouldn't be reading it because obviously i'm i'm not a textual critical scholar of of the septuagint and so i have to rely upon these smarter minds but uh the from what i understand the oldest manuscripts that we have have ego me uh w- within the passage i am and there is no other and so basically what we have here is um the, the translators of the Septuagint, the, these ancient Jews, understanding Ego me as being um, synonymous or even indicating the name of God
1: yeah.
2: uh, with the, the Tetragrammaton, uh, the name Yahweh. Right? Um, so I, I think that it speaks volumes about what uh, this phrase means within the context of the Old Testament.
0: Well, and it certainly would comport with, you know, one of the previous Isaiah passages that we looked at. In other words, it's not as if, um, it's not as if there isn't already a precedent for using "ego away me" in this, you know, uh, creator. Um, th- this text that refers to the Lord as the creator.
2: Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's right. Um, and if we if we go one more verse, uh, Isaiah forty five nineteen. Uh, when you look at, you know, our our regular English translation of the Hebrew text, it says, I, the Lord, speak the truth. Um, but what's interesting here is the Septuagint renders this, this text, I am, I am the Lord, speaking <laughs> righteousness. So we have a, a double utilization of ego, I, me, one with, out the predicate, right. and then one with. So... I, I think from texts like these and, and then some others that whether or not uh, an me phrase has a predicate really isn't the issue because I think there's enough flexibility within the way that it's used in the Old Testament to um, say that, well, there, there's a certain amount of – there's a certain amount of leeway there to, to let the text sort of speak for itself. Hmm. Um so, in, in light of verse eighteen, and, and then this addition of egoim in nineteen, I, I think it's pretty convincing that there's something going on with this phrase at bare minimum. And and I I think what's going on there is is that this is a phrase that the Jews understood as being indicative of God. Yeah. Um, another couple of texts that uh, I'll briefly mention here: um, Isaiah forty-five. Or excuse me, forty three twenty five and fifty one twelve. Uh, within the septuagint, uh, you have another occurrence of Ego I me occurring in succession, um, <laughs> wh- where you don't have that. You don't have the the Hebrew equivalent anyhu uh, uh, occurring within the Hebrew text. And Isaiah forty three twenty five it says, I am. I am the one who blots out your acts of lawlessness. In Isaiah fifty one twelve, I am, I am He who comforts you. So again, we have that very interesting and sort of fascinating uh, kind of utilization of the phrase. And then, uh, well, may, maybe just one more passage that I, I think is is kind of important. Um, in Isaiah forty seven, uh, there is an interesting uh, little passage. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'll look at I'll look at verse 8 uh, and following. It says, But now hear these things, you delicate woman, uh, who sits securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no other. I shall not sit as a widow or no bereavement, but now both of these things shall come upon you suddenly, and one day widowhood and loss of children shall come upon you suddenly in your witchcraft, exceedingly in the strength of your enchantments. Now, Um, what is being talked about here is is Babylon and and God's judgment of Babylon. Uh, That's the delicate woman, and I think the context makes that clear. Um, What what is interesting here is that um, God's characterization of what Babylon says, I am and there is no other, I won't be a widow, I want no bereavement, the utilization of "I am" within this passage uh, of Egoi Me is very similar to the sort of style and tenor to which God uh, use, uses that passage in the second uh, half of Isaiah, in the, in the verses prior to uh, what of this one in, in Isaiah 43, and, and so forth, and so. What I think is going on here, and I I think it's a legitimate reading of of the text, I think God is placing um, a phrase uh, on the lips of this, you know, quote, delicate woman that is meant to communicate uh, those attributes of sovereignty and exclusivity and all that ...to this idolatrous people. And it's serving um, as what I like to call a receptor of judgment. So that the one who is truly, you know, the I am, the ego I me, is going to uh, bring a dose of reality, of sobering reality upon these people. And so I think that's very interesting. And, and And I think that, you know, when you look at all this data... I think it becomes pretty evident that, number one, there is an an atypical utilization of, of I am, certainly within um, Isaiah and Deuteronomy and, and elsewhere. But in addition to that, that this is a name um, that is indicative of God uh, and, and exclusively so, and that people who use that name – um, are blaspheming, um, yeah. like Babylon, right? Right. Uh, so there are other places in the Old Testament we go to, but at least that gives you kind of a flavor of of what is going on. And you know, some of these um, kinds of texts, I mean, they're, they're very interesting. Uh, but then, we're, you know, moving towards the New Testament, go ahead. Well, no, that's where I was going to take you because it wasn't that long ago. Uh, that
0: you posted on Facebook saying that there's one of these uh, Ego-A-Me statements um, in Mark 6, and you saw that as being one that rivals another one in John 8. So maybe we could talk about uh, those
2: two. I don't know if that's where you were going to go next. Yeah, I mean, um, boy, I, I, I've read some books about this where um, some people I really respect were reticent to um, you know, say that these Ego-A-Me statements in and and Mark are uh, legitimately the kind of statements that we find in the gospel of John. Hmm. Uh, but at the same time, uh, some of those same people will say, well, look, if, if we take a look at Mark chapter six, where we find the account of Jesus walking on the water and he says, uh, well, at least as, as most English translations render, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid, or it'll say, "Take heart in his eye." Uh, mm. Do not be afraid. Um, that same account is obviously paralleled in John, in in John chapter six. And some will, some will be inconsistent and say, "Well, yeah, okay, maybe we could see that in John six, but we can't see see it in Mark." It's almost like people are scared to, um, to go there in the synoptic gospels and. I kind of felt the same way for for a while, but I, I I spent a little time in Mark over the past month, and I came away with a really uh, profound appreciation for what is going on in Mark six. And if we say that Mark has, you know, a chronological priority, then I think this makes us all the more. Uh, all the more profound on a, on a number of levels, on levels regarding the historical Jesus and 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 forward from that. I think it's just very interesting. Um, what happens in that passage? As I mentioned, Jesus is walking on the water, and um, you know the the disciples uh, are fearful. They say that they've, uh, you know, the text says that they fear that they, you know, like they've seen a ghost, um, and Jesus's response is, is one so as to comfort them, you know, take heart, it is I, don't, but don't be afraid. Um, and in that we have an ego I me statement. Now people like FF Bruce, um, someone who I, I greatly respect, uh, I mean, gosh, um, he says of the parallel in John, and this is a, a quote, he says, There are places within this gospel, that, that of course being the gospel of John, where the words ego me have the nature of divine designation. But here they simply mean it is I. And so you know when I when I hear something like that from someone of the aptitude and giftings of FF Bruce, you know, I'm putting that and, weighing these things in a balance.
1: Right.
2: Uh, and he's not the only one. I mean, there are many, many others that, um, that have said something very similar, but w- when I look at, um, Mark six, not only do I see an, an ego, I me statement, um, but I, uh, there's some little details within the text that kind of kind of bring it home. Probably the most obvious, and I, so I guess it's not a detail. Jesus is walking on the water here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That should, we shouldn't ignore that. Yeah, uh, um, you know we get we get used to these texts because we're constantly thinking about them and reading them and you know going over them and we're we're probably more thinking along the lines of what did that look like, (laughs) you know, Uh, was he like bouncing on the water or was it like a firmament or what, you know? Um, But yeah, he's walking on the water, uh, which, you know, there's a text in Job um, that says in in Job uh, 9, it says that the the Lord Yahweh is the one who tramples the waves of the sea hmm. which I think is an interesting text that maybe has a little bit of an import here. so there's sort of a divine identity thing going on there where Jesus is you might say walking where God walks uh, that's a that's job
0: nine eight for for our listeners by the
2: way yeah so, and and so so that's first and foremost. That, that's what's going on Jesus is walking where scripture says yahweh walks and there's somewhat of a throwaway verse in mark 6 uh, verse 48 i I've read this text dozens of times and it was only until recently that I noticed it and it caught my eye mark 648 notes that Jesus meant to pass them by that is the disciples who were in the boat now this is interesting why would Jesus mean to pass them by? Or why would at least Mark include that in there? I mean, what I, I've tried to consider this. Like, what would be his motivation in including this detail? And I've, I've read some people on this, and, and I think this bears a lot of weight. Um, oftentimes, within the Old Testament, there are places in which... Uh, God will pass by use, using that kind of language, uh, His people, to make Himself known uh, as uh, a savior or a comforter. Right? We hmm. can think of, you know, Moses at the bush, and you know, God hides Moses within the cleft of the rock, and He passes by Moses. And that's not the only account of of that kind of thing happening. Um, there's an interesting passage within the um, First Kings 19, um, uh, like around verse 11, where you have this kind of thing occurring as well. Um, but when I when I look at all of this, and I and I look at the context of what is going on here, these are the three things that I see at play. Number one, I I see Jesus walking where God walks. Right. I see him using the language of God in the in the statement of ego i me. Mean. And in a way that kind of invokes some of those isianic passages and I see him also passing by his people um, in a way that is entirely reminiscent in the way that God passes by his people in the Old Testament. yeah, and so you know, if we were to sort of atomize the text and just look at this egoime statement outside of his context, we might not be so inclined to to say, yeah, this this is one of those, you know, profoundly important Ego-I-Me statements, but upon closer examination, I, I'm convinced that it is. Because this is a characterization of the one who passes by his people, having sovereign command of nature, making him known by the phrase I am, and he's purposefully invoking the revelations of God in the Old Testament by doing that. It's not as though Jesus was ignorant of the Old Testament. Sure. And so I, I like what, what uh, John Edwards in his great commentary on Mark, uh, the uh, pillar commentary on Mark, he says this, quote, Jesus in his walking on water to his disciples is a revelation of the glory he shares with the father and the compassion that he extends to his followers. It is a divine epiphany in answer to their earlier bafflement when he calmed the storm and they replied, who is this? Who is this man? You know, yeah. uh, very interesting stuff, and I, I think also very compelling.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to um, dismiss all of this as coincidence. You know, I mean, foot, the footnote in the ESV for that strange little phrase there, or not the footnote, but the uh, cross reference is uh, is Luke twenty four twenty eight, where uh, they're drawing near to the village to which they were going, and then Jesus acted as if he were going farther. Um, which, but but well, and somebody might try to say, "Look, it's it's just saying he was going to go further than them." You know, he meant to go further farther than them. But you know, not only does the, is the Greek different if 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 I'm any good at Greek, um, but uh, but it, it's it's entirely conceivable that it's there's multiple layers here that he is not just going past them, but that. You know, but that it's supposed to invoke alongside this him walking on the water and him calling himself Ego Emi. Uh I mean, like I said, it's hard to dismiss uh, all of these different factors as as mere coincidence. Um, so yeah, that's really that's really fascinating. And um, you know, as you and I talked about on Facebook on on this on that thread, um, you know, I'm I'm, st- I'm still wondering about that uh, that uh, phantasm thing there. And and you know, maybe we'll talk about that. Oh uh, yeah, time. the
2: phantasm. Yeah, that's it's yeah. interesting. It's interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't want to open up another can of worms, but, um, but no, this is, this is really tremendous. I think you're right. This very well could rival, uh, that other one, but, but maybe we can go to that other one in, in John eight. Can can we talk about that one?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, John chapter eight. Well, you know what? It, let me just mention this in passing. Um, there is one other statement in Mark that I, I think is just worth mentioning, um, in Mark fourteen sixty two, uh, within that context, you have of course Jesus, uh, you know, in the in the uh, the kangaroo court sort of trial, uh, <laughs> the trial by night there that was going on, and you have the the high priest with his false witnesses sort of um, there, and and the high priest you know asked Jesus. Uh, Are you the Christ, the Son of the the Blessed One? And this is Jesus' response, which has always kind of puzzled me before I I looked into this. Uh, He says this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Right. Now, you you as a orthodox preterist preterist are well aware of, this kind of judgment language in regards to the coming on the clouds.
0: Well, and the specific Old Testament prophecy, uh, in which, in which he's referring or to which he's referring.
2: Right. Exactly. And, and, and we, we understand the son of man language, uh, fits well within that, you know, within Daniel seven and that sort of thing. And, um, sitting at the right hand of power, uh, sitting at the right hand of God is, is, a phrase that indicates that you have the power of God. I mean, I, I personally think if you sit on God's right hand, you um, are are someone who is privy to, to that kind of attribute of God. But um, it's interesting because while Jesus' words here without um, the uh, – Without the, the other sort of background of Egel, I mean, they make perfect sense with, within the Greek text and I think within most good English translations. So if, if you were to atomize the text and just read this one passage, it may not pop out to you like there's you know, uh, something going on here. I mean he is providing an answer to the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And he's saying, yeah, I am. But at the same time, there's a double meaning going on here, and I think yeah. it's rather obvious. And this text is a punch in the face <laughs> mm-hmm. to to the high priest, because look at his response. He, he says, uh, Mark says that uh, he tore his garments, and he said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. Well, if Jesus was just claiming to be the created agent of god just like Moses just like maybe human judges what why why would there be a charge of blasphemy right. um, you know i I've, I've always wondered what you know uh, of course you know granted I'm, I'm i'm granting the fact that you know the jews understood what he was communicating And, you know, Unitarians may dispute that, but I happen to think that Jesus was the supreme communicator, and I think, of course, they understood what he was communicating. Sure.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I I think it's the combination of both Ego me there and the, um, you know, you you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, I think it's a combination of those two things that that prompt this response uh, on the part of the high priest because, uh, you know, I understand – that um, you know that the the Unitarians are going to point to agents as you know uh, 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 that that God could give a kingdom um, to the to a to a created Messiah, but uh, I don't think that's how I don't think that's how the Jews that he was talking to understood this passage from Dan, Daniel seven. I mean, the the, uh, the the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven in this passage and comes up the ancient of days, and then he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages <laughs> should serve
2: him. Yeah. And, his and, dominion
0: is an everlasting dominion. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah and, and then when we read how that plays out in revelation and we see Jesus is seated on God's throne with God. Right. And, and all the, you know, all these kinds of things, when we take a cumulative examination, you know, a pan canonical look at all these different things, I think that's really where the death blows of, of the Unitarian arguments come in. Um, you know, so if if we say, "Look, this this passage is obviously just a uh, response to you know the high priest." Yeah, you're right, it is, but it's also so a response <laughs> that is uh, communicating um, irony. Number one, because it's communicating his deity, and in the in the form of a response, he's utilizing the normative you know, way in which people use ego, I, me, you know, as a means of self-identification. But at the same time, um, he's using that phrase uh, to communicate a divine identity. Sure. Um, so th- those are the two uh, occurrences within the Synoptic Gospels that I think are, are, are worth pointing out. Uh, perhaps a third, but uh, those are the two that, that I like to uh, mention. And and what about John
0: eight? Can we talk about this one?
2: Oh yeah, John eight. Well, here uh, maybe. Um, well, there's a, a couple of couple of occurrences in John eight. We also have John four, um, with the woman at the well. You know, I who speak to you am he that that one, and um, we we find a, a parallel with that in Isaiah fifty two six and. If we were to compare the Greek, we would see that it's very, very similar. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I think so similar that there's a purpose in that. But, but when we look at John 8, and uh, keep in mind uh, John 6 is a... Um, before John 8, and that gets back to Jesus walking on the water with, with that whole thing. Right. Um, John eight twenty four. 24... Um, is really interesting. It says, uh, "I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, or I am He rather, uh, you would die in your sins." Now, um, I, I, when I hear about this text and and kind of consider it and picture Christ saying this, um, just just taking, just kind of separating the. The background of Vega me from this um, it would seem to be that Jesus is basically saying that I'm the arbiter of your eternal destination right you know so so just that alone, and I think we're sometimes when we're making arguments to Unitarians, we kind of forget the obvious, but that being that being a given um unless you believe. That I am, uh, you will die in your sins, um, is very, very interesting, particularly in light of Isaiah 43.10, which is a, a text that we talked about, which says something similar. It says, I have chosen so that you may know and believe and understand that I am. It's not an exact parallel by any measure, but this is the kind of language that we found in Isaiah, which is... The same kind of language and the same, certainly, the same kind of connotation that we see in John in a number of places, yeah. Um, where Jesus is taking the verbiage of, of, you know, God in, in Isaiah and in Deuteronomy and uh, applying it to himself. Another one is is John thirteen nineteen. and I, I won't skip over John eight fifty eight, but John thirteen nineteen I think is very similar to John eight twenty four. Um, because it it provides, again, another nearly identical parallel to Isaiah 43.10. John 13.19 says this, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does uh, take place, that you may believe that I am. And again, Isaiah 43.10 says, Be my witnesses, I too am a witness, says the Lord God, and the servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Now, if if we were to look at, you know, if we were to take a comparison of Isaiah forty three ten and John thirteen nineteen, all the key terms are there. Mm. I I think the the parallel here I think is absolutely obvious. And um, you know, if I can uh, maybe plug James White's book, uh, The Forgotten Trinity, which of course, I would recommend. um, He points this out very clearly where I think he actually takes a transliteration of the of the Greek there and lines it up so you can see it with your own eyes. Mm. Um, You know, these henna clauses, uh, I'm just looking at it here. It seems quite remarkable to me and it seems like an intended parallel. And I don't think that's a stretch. Uh, but yeah john eight fifty eight you know that's the biggie right right um, I tell you uh before Abraham was I am and uh, I obviously in ego I me statement that's that's absolute you know without the the predicate um, you know so much has been written about this sure uh, so much ink has been. Uh, spilt over this one you know nobody seems to want to deal with the reaction of, of the Jews right um, which you know I mean I, I just read a book on hermeneutics and interpretation and um, methodology and this sort of thing and, you know one of the things that kept driving home ad nauseum was context and you know, so often we're like, yeah, well, look at this thing. I mean, obviously, look at the context. And, and you don't see a lot of Unitarian literature dealing with the fact that the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, which is the prescribed penalty for blasphemy. Right. Um, you know, we I mean, could – oh, go ahead. Well, I mean I was just going to say I, the only
0: the only possible thing I could think of – uh, in order to get out of it would be to try to say that the reaction okay. was to something else that he had said prior to that and and if you know i mean if, i mean because he says uh, you 've not known him, uh, I know him if i were uh, if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but, but I do know him, and I keep his word um, you know some of this I could see some of that language offending them and and maybe. In somewhere in there, I might be able to pull out something that might prompt them uh, to want to throw stones at him for blasphemy. But the thing is, is uh, that w- they would have had that reaction before they interjected and asked the question they did, which is, or, or which is, you're not yet fifty years old and you've seen Abraham. In other words, I don't see any other, other possible explanation than that their response was specifically to him affirming that uh, that he was before Abraham, that I am before Abraham. Do you know what I mean?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And and what makes I I think this even more compelling is uh, the way in which John words uh, verse fifty nine there uh, because it says um, therefore uh, or th- or so they picked up stones to throw at him right. Uh, so the the, um, the 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 conjunction there, uh, I think, communicates the idea of what happens subsequent to what Jesus said, or upon the base basis of what Jesus said. I I think that's the obvious connotation to to um, to the to the the Greek text, and so. Um, when yeah, I mean, just in in other words,
0: just so our listeners are tracking. In other words, the the word uh, I don't I don't know if you pronounce it own there. That's uh, translated then. It's not simply uh, a temporal thing. It's not just saying next. You know, they took up stones to cast at him. It's saying therefore, because of what he had just said, they took up stones to cast at him. That's what you are saying,
2: right? Yeah, that's precisely right. I mean, it's it's slight. It's you know, it's it's nuanced. You know, it's not you know, maybe not the exact equivalent of therefore, but the connotation is there. I mean, look at look look at Leviticus 24, uh, verse 16. I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall he be put to death. Now, notice that. When he blasphemes the name, shall he be put to death. Yeah. Um, in, in our understanding, uh, Jesus is using the divine name here. He's using a, a phrase that communicates God, that communicates um, this is the same phrase that the translators of the Septuagint understood as being synonymous with, with God. So – it seems to me that you have to make a few leaps and jumps um, to to kind of get out of that. And I know, you know, there are all kinds of crazy, admittedly odd Unitarian <laughs> arguments that I've, 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 I've read them all. And nothing really explains the context of the passage as, I mean, when you look at it, from the perspective of all that we've looked at thus far, I think it's pretty obvious what's going on here. Yeah. And, and let me just make something clear.
0: Um, I know that you said that the conjunction there is, is, uh, as meaning something like therefore is, is subtle. I'm I'm not convinced that that's the case. I mean, it's translated therefore in the King James version over 250 times, um, fair, which admittedly is a little bit outdated. Um, Start. It it starts out with saying that this 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 conjunction is one that indicates that something follows another necessarily, you know. Um, I, I'm I, I think that I think that it's maybe less subtle than one might think that that this really ought that this really is communicating that this is the reason. What he said is the reason why they picked up stones to throw at him.
2: Yes. It well, I will say this: there are ways in which John could have said it so as to make it even clearer. Uh, explicit, mm, okay. Uh, but I, but I think the uh, the inferential conjunction. I, I I think that it is is par- particularly in in John's Gospel and in the writings of Paul. Um, I think it's uh, just sort of a natural way of of speaking to communicate um, something subsequent to something else. You know, it's just. A logical way of understanding the text, and I think it's meant to be under, understood in that way. So, yeah, I mean, I—that's I, exactly what I think it means. In fact, I have a uh, uh, couple of fancy lexicons here
1: <laughs>
2: that cost me lots of money, and uh, I, I wish I used them more often. But um, Lo Anita, uh, whose lexicon looks at. And, and collates the semantic domains of names and, and this kind of thing, and I find it very useful. Um, it defines this uh, word as the marker of a result, often implying the, communica- the conclusion of or the process of reasoning. Um, it's translated as so, consequently, according to, uh, rather accordingly then, so then you get the idea, and also therefore, uh, quite often. So yeah, it carries that connotation. And, um, and I think that's obviously what is, what is going on in the passage, uh, um, when it's looked at with, within its context. And I think looking at the, the Levitical law (laughs) makes it all the more evident. Right. Yeah. Well, this is, so yeah,
0: this is really powerful stuff. Let's come back then with, with all of this background in mind, you know, um, I remember we started off this conversation with me asking you if it was grammatically acceptable for him to say "I am" in John 18. Uh, you know, despite there not being a pronoun there, and, and you said yes. And but but now that we've gone through all this tremendous uh, background, both in the Old Testament and the New, that communicates so many layers of of deity, um, you know, and attributing them to Jesus. Let, let's return back to 18 or John 18:6. Is there anything that more now, with all of that in mind, that you want to share about this passage before we begin to wrap things up?
2: Yeah, um, and just and just looking at John eighteen six, um, keeping in mind all that stuff, and and if you just pay a real close attention to what's going on there, um, the fact that you not only had uh, you know, the temple officers, but you also had a, a contingent of Roman soldiers <laughs> that they were equipped. Not just with torches, but also lanterns that they were uh carrying a multiplicity of of weapons <laughs> I mean this was a a trained uh group of individuals looking after a Jewish peasant who was known to have a couple of you know fishermen hanging around with them <laughs> um, you know it was a, it was an armed posse to to use the anachronistic language there. Uh, So, yeah, so they go out into the woods and and they get a hold of of Jesus, and, of course, John says uh, that when Jesus said to this group, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And when when I read that text, I, I think why these people fell to the ground is rather obvious, and it's because Jesus utilizes the divine name and in so doing uh, demonstrates his sovereign power uh, in the fact that he is uh, the I am uh, and I think that's rather obvious in light of what we've seen and I think it would be obvious in the Jewish mind and and keep in mind there's there's a causal uh, relationship going on between what Jesus uh, says and the response of the the mob falling back to the ground and and they did fall to the ground they didn't just kind of shrink back but they actually right. fell to the ground uh, no, notice the text says when Jesus said I am uh, that is when we have that response and when you start to read some of the Unitarian responses <laughs> is kind of where things get well. It's kind of where the Unitarians go off the rails in a real obvious way. <laughs> you know, right. they'll say things like, um, it was his moral majesty that caused the mob to fall back to the ground. Or, they were just the right, Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, because Roman soldiers are always terrified of moral <laughs> people. Um, or they'll say something like, um, like, okay, mentioning Patrick Navas, you know, he was the fellow that debated uh, Dr. White on your show. Um, he, in his book, his rather lengthy uh, book, um, cites what is called, uh, I think very interestingly, the Interpreter's Bible. <laughs> and that that text uh, regarding John 18.8 says this the moral majesty of Jesus astonished the captors who recoiled in amazement and some fell to the ground. (laughs) Now, now is this the kind of, I mean, is this, is this all they got? And it doesn't get much better than this. Um, looking at the, you know, all these top tier Unitarian guys like Stafford and, and all these other people, um, Really? Is is this this it? I mean, uh, you know, some people kind of chalk it up to, uh, um, you know, uh, well, they drew back and fell to the ground because they were surprised that Jesus gave himself up without any kind of resistance. And they probably weren't used to that. (laughs) I'm I'm literally quoting a a Unitarian book here, a guy by the name of David Kroll. Um, I mean... This is, this is what they have to offer, and, and I would invite your listeners to, to go and listen to some of that stuff and, yeah. and just see it. Because really, it's a good foil, and it kind of lays the rubber down. And, and it's passages like this, uh, John 18 and, and some of the other stuff, that it's, it's, this is why the early church worshipped Christ as God. This is right. why the early church understood that when you're talking about Christ, you're talking about God. Um, it's it's texts like this that that make sense within a gospel that you know Jesus says, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." When you have a, a this kind of characterization being applied to Jesus, it's obvious. And Unitarians. I mean, I guess they just atomized the text such that they don't get it all in one bite, and maybe this is why. I, I don't know, but one of the good examples of this kind of theology and this kind of understanding is the way in which the early church characterized Christ as God by using the nomina sacra in um, – their copies of of the New Testament text, uh, the Nomina sacra was a a, a contraction um, of certain names uh, that is um, really from from the earliest Christian you know uh, copies of the of the New Testament text, whereas the the Jewish writers would. Uh, provide a contraction for the name of God, and we know that as the Tetragrammaton. And similarly, Christian writers, when they would copy uh, New Testament books or the New Testament, would do the same, whereas they would contract the words Lord, Kyrios, or Jesus, Jesus, or Christos, Christ, and God, and Numa, Spirit, you know, they would contract these and and it was almost immediate that they started doing this i mean i don't have any hard and fast evidence that said that you know the 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 autographs had these kinds of uh, nomina sacra on them but it the evidence seems to point in that direction and these kinds of texts are why right uh, they did, they, did, they didn't pull this out of their hat yeah you know? <laughs> exactly and the historical evidence is there you know right. um it, it it just is overwhelming and you know, I was just reading uh, this Unitarian the other day and he was trying to say that the um, the creed of Nicaea was originally understood in its correct original context was a Unitarian creed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, this philosopher guy that, that runs a blog. And, and when I heard him say that – um. I actually I prayed for the man and I and I I I just felt overwhelmed by you know Jesus talks about blindness spiritual blindness and spiritual deadness yeah and yeah it's funny that the desperate interpretations but at the same time uh, this is a tragic thing and it, it seems is. like these people on the internet are. It it seems like a fad or something where all these people are coming out of the woodwork affirming these absurd readings of scripture, and and I just pray the Spirit of God comes on these people and opens up their eyes because the church has believed this since its inception, and Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against it, and this. Gates of Hades. uh, Okay, yeah, the gates of (laughs) Hades. Yeah, sorry. I'm going back to my King James That's days. The gates of days. <laughs> 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 oh boy. Uh, and um you know and and Jude said that this is the face one want- faith once delivered, and it would seem to me that we would have to say that if the Unitarians are right, that we would have to kind of we'll say, Well, I, I guess I guess the church has lost its uh first love if if Jesus isn't who we believe he is. But um, I, I think the evidence points in the opposite direction.
0: Yeah. And, and before we begin to wrap things up, uh, let me just take this passage from John 18 and, and point something out, take it out of just the apologetic context in which we've been discussing it, but uh, I, I, you know, we, we were talking earlier or at least I was talking earlier about when Jesus oh, – yeah, we were – where Jesus said that no greater love uh, has – you know, exists than for a man to give up his life for his friend. one of the things that I find most powerful about this passage in John 18 is I, I think that by using, you know, the divine I am to refer to himself and, and, and in a demonstration of power which brings the Roman contingent to the group, to their knees or, or, you know, makes them fall to the ground – he 's demonstrating that this is the kind of power he has and yet he willingly gives himself up to his uh, to his arrestors and and I just think that that is I mean this this truly is the spotless Lamb of God that doesn't you know he, he keeps he keeps silent he doesn't he doesn't try to fight what's coming to happen he, he willingly gave his life for his people and I just think that's such an amazing call for praise and you know that's that that kind of god is a god that Unitarianism or at least Arianism and Socinianism doesn't have. And I think that's – the word, to, to use the word that you used, I think that's incredibly tragic. So uh, I just wanted to give our listeners cause to, for praise and for awe at the god who would – who can force people to their knees but also willingly gives himself into their hands uh, to bear the punishment that we deserved in our place. Um,
2: yeah, you're exactly right. And and the, the most amazing the most amazing verse in John 18 isn't verse 6. It's it's verse 4 because it says then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to mm-hmm. him, came forward and said to them, "Whom do you seek?" Yeah. He knew, he knew that the the grim reality of what he was going to experience, and yet he still came forward. Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
0: Um, let, let's begin to th- wrap things up. Um, do you have any sort of concluding summary advice for Dr. Fernandez for his upcoming debate with Dave Barron in light of everything we've talked about and maybe anything else that you might want to pass on to him? Because this may very well be the last help that we're able to give him. His debate is in a week from when we're recording this, so it will be less than that by the time he hears it. So just any any, any concluding advice that you might have for Dr. Phil before his debate?
2: Yeah, well hmm. – I would say pray, (laughs) not because I, I don't think, uh, he's capable of, of giving an answer, but because I, I think that, um, we, we need to rely upon the the work of the spirit here, um, to take off scales and to raise dead men. Um, and then I would also say that, uh, I think that the most persuasive and and the most potent uh, arguments are are not the precise exegetical arguments where we really break down the text and and get down to the nuts and bolts grammar and syntax to you know kind of go it that way, although that certainly has its value, but rather looking at the themes of both the New Testament and how the New Testament understands the Old Testament and identify the fact that we have a God that is innately and absolutely relational. Mm. That God is, in fact, Father, and that has to be something that is driven home to no end. And that by virtue of that, we understand, because God is the one who is relentlessly set to be known as father, um, he is the one who has a son, and that God didn't learn about love or learn about relationship upon creation, but rather he, uh, in his own nature, uh, is familiar with love and uh, familiar with um, relationship. And, And you had mentioned this one time. I mean, even if we think about this... A concept which is is hard to pin down the concept of, of being made in god's own image right mm, and,
1: yeah. and
2: you think about well the one thing that god said that wasn't good was the fact that man was alone yeah and so what the unitarian would say is well the one to whom god made in his image it's not good for him to be alone but but the one to whom the image belongs, <laughs> it's good for him to be alone forever. Mm. I, I mean, it's these kinds of very obvious and 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 plain and and big themes that I, I think they're they're right there. And I I think sometimes we're you know we're we're trying to get the the precise tools out when really the only thing we need is a, a careful reading of the. Uh, of the scriptures in, in plain English. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and what about for everybody else listening, whether they're Trinitarian or not, do you you have a parting message you'd like to share to them?
2: Yeah. Uh, um, read the gospel of John (laughs) 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 because it's great and live there for a while. Spend five years in the gospel of John and then tell me how you're not a Trinitarian you know uh read the thing in context and and for christians uh the gospel of john is an evangelistic book and it's not just the unbeliever that needs the gospel yeah
1: um
2: i i have spent many hours in the gospel of john and, and um aside from the the psalms i can't think of any other place where my faith has been strengthened as much and i i I've talked to other christians and they and they seem to feel the same way it's a it's a book that it's good to drink deeply from and and to enjoy and and it's a strength building book and and John tells us that in fact is what its purpose is in in john twenty yeah. uh so yeah do those things and and enjoy it and and uh make sure that you tell your friends about it yeah <laughs> because uh it's really uh the, the only thing that's better than than taking it in is uh sharing it with with not only the unbeliever but especially the christian uh, who's sitting next to you in church yeah yeah
0: well very good um where can our listeners get a copy of your book i, I know that i know that kiss the sun isn't about you know, Sassins, Sassinians and Arians. It, it, it's geared specifically toward one oneness Pentecostals, but nevertheless, it's, there's going to be some overlap there. So, where, where can our hand Where can our listeners get their, their hands on a copy of your book?
2: Yeah, and you're, you're right, and, and it has a lot of uh, a lot of material that 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 does in fact overlap. In fact, I would argue that almost all of it does. But uh, Amazon, I guess, uh, Barnes and Noble, or uh, you know, any of the normal booksellers uh you can go to the karm website and and i think you can find it there uh, but anywhere you normally buy books uh you you'll find it and how about
0: the journal of trinitarian study and apologetics where, where can they find that
2: uh yeah same places amazon uh barnes and noble uh cbd these kinds of places uh they all they all have the have it there and uh Hopefully, uh, we'll be uh, releasing uh, the EPUB, Kindle, and, and Nook um, for the journal uh, shortly. I've been working on that for some time, and um, that'll be uh, a pretty steep discount from the paper copy. I think the paper copy runs only about $10, bucks, uh, but um, I'm looking to really cut that down uh, on the, um, the e-copy, so uh, keep, keep that in mind
0: okay well like i said at the beginning i'll make sure to include links in the show notes to where they can find these michael it's always a huge pleasure to have you on my show and i always enjoy talking to you thank you so much for taking the time to to not only help myself and and my listeners but also to help dr phil out and i hope that this uh proves helpful for him thanks again for your time
2: oh yeah thank you
0: praying for dr fernandez his debate is on saturday uh, november 16th 3 p.m eastern 12 p.m pacific on healing x outreach radio and i'll include a link in my show notes stay tuned for the next episode of the the apologetics podcast until then